Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would grant us good attention span. Help us to stay in the moment. Help us to be fully engaged in this part of camp. And Lord, reward us for our hearing, meaning that not only will we hear, but we will do. Grant us this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a long time ago, but I remember driving a seven-year-old boy to go see his mom, who was in jail. She was in jail because she was uh, a prostitute, and she had been busted for that and also for selling drugs. And it looked like that she was going to stay in jail this time because she was a repeat offender. And I had never done anything like this before. He's in the back seat of the car, in the car seat, and I'm driving him, and I'm feeling the weight of just taking him to see his mom. And what really killed me was on the way there, and I'm just kind of making small talk with him, you know, just trying to, kill the time or make up the time as we're going. He says this in a lull in the conversation with, uh, with his voice breaking. He says this, it's all my fault. I didn't know it at the time, but that's typical. That is kind of textbook standard. That when families have problems, when mom and dad are arguing, or they divorce, or one leaves the other, or one goes to jail, he actually thought that because he didn't keep his room clean, that that's the reason that his mom was a prostitute. That's the reason his mom was selling drugs. That's the reason his mom got caught. Or that he didn't do his schoolwork. Or whatever. My heart was broken. Was that true, by the way? Do you think that's true? Do you think that it was all his fault? I don't either. But what had happened was he had accepted a false reality. To him, this was completely and fully true. He was convinced. That's why his heart was breaking. That's why his voice was breaking as he said that. This was his perception of what was true. And he couldn't handle it. Well, you can imagine what I said. I mean, I said... You know, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be driving, and I'm turning around talking to this kid, saying, that is not true. That's not true. This is on your mom. This is not on you. I have no idea how convincing I was. Took him to the visit. Took him home. But what's your reality? What do you think is true? How are you and I 
living on our lives, what are we thinking as we go day by day? Are you thinking you don't measure up? Are you thinking I'm worthless, I'm not interesting, I'm damaged goods, I'll never get ahead, nobody likes me, I'm, uh, I'm not as athletic or as tall. And by the way, tall isn't everything, but it's almost everything. <laughs> the great Francis Schaeffer said that we as Christians sit in two different chairs all the time. This chair is what is true, really true. This is, this is the real reality. This is when we're listening to God, when we're reading the Bible, when we're believing, when we're trusting, when we're acting in faith, when we're following through on what God says. But the other chair, the other chair is when we don't believe. And he's saying that Christians are like this. You sit in this chair, and now what is true is suspended. Now you're depressed. Now you don't think you're worth anything. Now you think you're better than everybody. Whatever it is, you have suspended reality because reality isn't in this chair, it's over there. Right? And so he says we flip back from one to another. This one, I believe God. I trust God. I am in covenant with God. My life and my story matters. And God is behind me. He is for me. His intention is to bless me. And it doesn't matter what my present situation is. But over here, when we sit in this chair, we don't believe God cares. We don't, we don't believe He likes us. We believe that we're forsaken. We're not trusting and we're living for ourselves because that this reality is not that reality. Now the point, of course, is to try and stay in that chair all the time. Isn't it? I mean, there's no blessing here. God still in God is now in rescue mode. He is now in conviction mode. He is now in putting trouble in your life mode to get you to repent or to get you to realize that He really loves you so that He can get you to come back and sit in this chair and live in such a way that you have the assurance that He is for you, that nothing is against you, that He will, that He's providing for you, that He will get you through this, that He will teach you. It's all right here. So you're all sitting in chairs out there. What chair are you sitting in right now? You know where you are. God knows where you are. And maybe, maybe you're at this camp, and maybe you're hearing these kinds of things that that Pastor Dwayne and I are talking about and others are talking about as you mingle with others, maybe maybe this is a way, just because you're here providentially, maybe this is a sign 
that God really cares about you and loves you. We could stop now, couldn't we? That was pretty good. I mean, you think about it. When I'm done, the rest of the day is eating and fun. No pressure, right? Well, I remember sitting in both chairs. I remember being in one and then the other. And as a pastor and as a person who, who loves you, I really want you to be in the right chair all the time. Because your heart and soul demands reality. You want and crave what is true and what is real. You don't want to be left out there in the void. You don't want to be rudderless and, and without a sail and ending up here all the time. We want to talk to you about getting back over here and staying here. And I tell you, I have wrestled with for a while the dilemma. And I don't know if I said this last night because there were so many things left that I looked back and I said, did I say anything last night? Because there's so much stuff in my notes I didn't say. Um, I've been looking for something for my own family. You know, we do family worship. Or we get, we get in the living room and we have a family meeting and we go through the Bible and we talk about things like that. And then you know what happens? After that, everybody goes and just does their normal average stuff. We go to church, and after church, everybody just goes and does their normal average stuff. And there's just not a lot, there's just not a lot of concentrated, focused, deliberate life. But if we're in this chair, and we're letting God speak to us, and we're hearing Him, and we're doing what He says, this chair means that God really is, that there really is a God. This chair, we don't know, or we're acting as if there is no God. Does that make sense to you? And yet, we sit and play musical chairs. And you're all sitting in a chair, aren't you? I mean, you're sitting in chairs, right? You know that. So which chair are you sitting in right now? This is the chair. This is where you want to be. When we're in covenant with God, the Bible says that our life matters and that God speaks to us. Just like a father, the best father, the greatest dad, he talks to us and he tells us how to live our lives. And this is how he talks to us. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit who urges us and convicts us and enables us to, to live the Christian life. And then here, the Father speaks to us. And he only speaks to us because we're in covenant. If there were no covenant, there would be no scriptures. Does that make sense to you? I mean, if there wasn't, if God had not made a relationship with anyone, then there would be no reason to talk, for him to talk. Does that make sense? No covenant, no scriptures. 
But on the other hand, covenant, then scripture. You belong to me, love you, gave my son to die for you, so now I want to talk to you. I want to guide you. I want to instruct you. I want to encourage you. I want to remind you. I want to tell you stories about people like you who kept covenant, waffled on covenant, broke covenant, repented and came back and kept covenant, right? He wants to talk to you. Now, as we, as I referred last last night, we are all under covenant, but there's something else that we are under in covenant. And you remember the word I used there? Context, right? So let's look at a context, shall we? If you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs chapter 31. In Proverbs chapter 31, we find the most awesome woman. This is the babe of babes. Okay? And I'll start reading in verse 10. Who else could, who else would like to read? And you have to read louder than the fan. No, never mind. You don't have a mic. I'll read. But you can look along, okay? And by the way, if you don't know this, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10 to verse 31, is an acrostic. Do you know what an acrostic is? What an acrostic is, is, is uh, when you take a person's, like say you've seen this, you've seen people, you've seen your name in an acrostic, like, like Bill, you know, it's B-I-L-L, -L, and then they put something next to B means this, I means this, you know. Well, let's do one. Lawrence. L is for. It's up to you now. You're you're the one writing the acrostic, huh? Love. That's a little girly. <laughs> a is for. Awesome. Okay, I'll take that. The next letter is U. It's not a W. L A W. It's L A U. U is for. All right. We'll stop there. We'll just, we're done. But Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 31, is an acrostic, and every one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are utilized to describe this woman. Or not this woman, but the excellent woman. And so the first one starts with who can find a virtuous woman or excellent woman, and it ends with excellent. So basically, what this acrostic is saying is, this is typical of the excellent woman. The excellent. If you're looking for what an excellent woman is, this is what, the, the principles and all, of what an excellent woman is. She's described. But this woman doesn't exist. I mean, this isn't... This is probably not the description of a particular woman. You get that? If you were conceiving what the best, greatest wife woman would be like, and you had 22 points to make, you would get together like the Westminster Divines, right? Putting together Westminster Confession of Faith and 
and they would answer this, this question just like they answered all the questions that they answered. Like, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, we're just going to take the whole Bible. We're going to go through that whole thing, and we're going to say, and this is the Holy Spirit. And they're going to look, in, they're going to look for evidence. They're going to look for truth, and they're going to put it all together so that when you look in the Westminster Confession under Holy Spirit, then you're going to know all about the Holy Spirit. Well, someone did that for the excellent woman. And I don't know back then if you could have gotten this in needlepoint and hung it in your living room back in those days, but I know we do that now. And so here's a description of excellence when it comes to the wife. Who can find a virtuous wife? Which means she's rare. For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax. Notice the transition, description, but now it's getting into the day-to-day. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. Gentlemen who are married and about to be married, if you ever turn to this passage and you think, look at what all this woman does. Why aren't she doing that, wife? She has maidservants. <laughs> Ladies, maybe you want to take a note and prepare for that husband who thinks she should do everything in the world. She has maidservants. And you know, that was worth the price of admission, just that. That's going to serve you ladies so well in the coming years. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good. Her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, whatever that is, and she handles the spindle. I know what that is. She extends her hand to the poor. Or yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Now here's what I want you to get from this. This woman is remarkable. Every woman who would do similarly, 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 if she did what this woman did in her own context, she would be a woman far above the value of rubies. But the particular thing I want you to notice is we have here 
basically what amounts to a daily schedule, right? We have morning, we have evening. There's time involved. She buys a she buys a parcel of land and plants a vineyard. She is knitting or sewing or whatever the distaff and spindle is. She's doing that. And she's making clothes for her family and she's selling scarves to the merchants. So you've got you've got kind of the idea that she knows what her routine is. She knows how she's reacting to life. She knows she's she's not letting the days just simply unfold or unravel. She is taking the time and the energy and the resources and everything that God has given to her. And she's living a life on Monday at noon and Monday at 3 and Monday at 7 and then Tuesday morning. And all, she's living in a deliberate way, making the most of her time. And as she's described, her kids can't talk enough about her. Her husband can't talk enough about her. And she is the epitome of excellence. Now, how does she get there? What's her motivation? Do you know? What causes a woman to, to do this? To be this? It's in the text. It's not a surprise. Do you know? Yes. It says a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. A woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. I thought she was being crazy, being praised for the vineyard, the scarves, the knitting, feeding the maidservants. I thought she was getting praised because her husband's heart uh, fully trusts in her, uh, that her household was scarred in, in scarlet. Did I say that right? That she makes tapestries, that her husband is known in the gates, that she bought a field, that she planted a vineyard. I thought that was why she was being praised. Is that why she's being praised? The answer is yes. She is being praised because the only way you fear God is because you know that you are in covenant with him. And because you're in covenant with him, it matters. It matters so much that she does all of this stuff. Now, you don't have to plant a vineyard. Aren't you glad? And you don't have to learn how to use the distaff, whatever that is. <laughs> but in the context of your life as a young woman, the only path to excellence, and this is non-negotiable, as a Christian woman, you are called to this, that you need to fill out your own particular acrostic. And the only way you do that, the reason she does this is because they had distaffs back then. Right? 
And so in your own, the context of your own life, if you act on the fact that you are in covenant with God, and then he speaks to you and he tells you what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to think and how you're supposed to speak and how you're supposed to live, then you know what? You find yourself in this chair. And you're blessed. Now, I don't know why anyone would want to sit in this chair at all. If you're happy, it's temporary. You're miserable. You know, you're a hypocrite. Or maybe you're miserable and you don't know that that chair is possible. But it is. Now let's talk about the guys. Proverbs chapters 1 through 30, actually 31 as well, if you want to get a little technical, is also for guys. So really, Proverbs chapter 1 through 31 is for guys. I know that's a little technical, but it's true. Just like every big wheel doesn't have 18 wheels. It has 19 if you want to count the wheel in front. But Proverbs chapters 1 through 30 speaks specifically to young men. Now, can you remember, can you give to me anything that Proverbs 1 through 30, any passage you can think of, that's talking to young men about a specific situation or scenario. Can you give anything to me? Well, yes, ma'am. Never was a greater word spoken. Right. So what's the point there? What's the point for the young man? Did you hear that? It's better to dwell on the corner of a housetop than with a, with a contentious woman or whatever, right? So what is the point? Choose a woman wisely, okay? Give me something else. By the way, do you think this young guy is going to encounter women in his, in his life? Do you think he lives in an all-male world? Do you think he might go to camp and meet several young women? Or in school or at church, right? So all through, the, ever since he's heard that, he needs to be thinking about the woman. What else? Give me something else in Proverbs. What? Heart? Right. Hard work. A man goes out. He lays down a harvest. And he, and he gathers a harvest. A lazy man. Proverbs 16, I think. You go, by the, you go by his place, and the wall is broken down, and there's weeds everywhere, right? So what's the point? Will this, will this young man, let's say he's 14, 16, do you think he will encounter work before he ever gets to his career? So whenever he encounters work, what's the point? He's supposed to put the work in. He's supposed to... Engage. He's supposed to be a great laborer. Give me something else. Praise. What? Praise. Praise your wife. Okay. I got to tell you, young men, 
You need to learn to praise your mom. You need to learn to praise your sisters. And that will pay great dividends when you get married and you start praising your wife. I know, you're looking at me crazy, but the, the guys who are married know what I'm talking about. Give me something else. Come on. Yes, ma'am. Oh, by the way, this is open book. If you want to open your Bibles and look, that's just fun. Wise men listen to correction. A wise man listens to correction, but a fool doesn't. So as this young man's being taught, any time that he's corrected, what should he what should he be thinking? And do you think going through the course of his life as a young man, do you think he'll ever be corrected by his mom, by his dad, especially by his older sisters and his younger sisters? Right? Everybody's going to be correcting him. But he should be thinking every time he's being corrected, what? That it's wise. That this is the path to wisdom, to learn. My favorite one is if you're, if you're sitting with a rich person at dinner. And they've got all, they're paying for the dinner and they've got all these dainties in front of you. And, and they, their heart is not with you, which means they're trying to get something from you. Or maybe... Maybe they're an unbeliever and they're just talking trash. What is the young man supposed to do? Do you remember? Yes. Take a knife to his throat. Did I mention this last night? Okay. Take a knife to his throat. Now, if it got out, if it got out, that one of these young guys here was at a dinner party and someone was trash talking the gospel or was trying to take advantage of this young guy or try to recruit him to something. If it got out that a young man at this camp was known to have stood up and taken the steak knife and put it to his throat, you would be a chick magnet. <laughs> Like, that's, that's fabulous. What is Proverbs 1 through 30 doing? It is telling the young man about the unfolding of his life, that as his life goes through, he'll be corrected. He'll be encountering all kinds of women that he should not be engaged with. He will, he will be in places where he needs to stand uncompromisingly with both the Proverbs 31 and with Proverbs 1 through 31 what God is graciously giving to us and it's all through the scripture it's either like this like Proverbs or it's like or it's in stories or it's straight up the prophets showing up and the apostles showing up encouraging and correcting all through the Bible, what is the point of being in covenant but that God speaks into our lives so that as we encounter every situation and circumstance and also positively move into life desiring to be excellent. 
He wants us not only to make something of ourselves, He wants to help us. He's giving us all things, First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, all things that, that, that uh, are necessary for life and godliness. You know what godliness means? It means being like God. Being like your heavenly Father. I mean, it's great when, when sons want to be like their dad. It's great when daughters want to be like their moms or their dads. Our Heavenly Father wants us to be like Him. And that should be our great desire. And so He tells us these things. He's, he's warning us. He's, he's looking out for us. He's graciously encouraging us. He's He's telling us this is going to happen and these are the kind of people you're going to meet and this is going to take place and you're going to encounter this and you're going to run into that and this is how you act. I was having a conversation with my oldest son, Ethan. We were driving to the abortion mill last week. And I don't know, Miles and Garrett, were you on? Were you, were you? Yeah, I think you were there too in the van. We're driving there and we're going to be holding signs and taking insults and and trying to get people from killing their babies. Sharing the gospel with anyone we can. And we're on the way, and my oldest son, Ethan, and I were talking about, somehow about, when you get into certain situations, sometimes it's hard to, to know what to do. I mean, because suddenly you find yourself in, in, a, in, a, in a circumstance, and, and you, you, know, you want to do what's right, but maybe... You, and I said, yeah, that's true, but... What God gives us is instructions so that our minds can be made up already. Does that make sense? Putting you ahead, a wise and, and all-knowing Heavenly Father knows everything that you will encounter, and He gives you these things. I told my son, you know, on the way to the abortion mill, I said, God gives us a lot of instruction so that our minds are already made up we just need to we need to hear them we need to embrace them and we need to believe them and we need to do them and i said you know we've we've encountered some pretty harsh things at the abortion mill in fact uh, uh charles humphrey here is one of our elders he actually got our whole church engaged in in other churches engaged in going to this very abortion mill and a guy pulled a gun on him one time he was there. And I said to my son, I said, you know, my decision already is that if someone pulls a gun at the abortion clinic, that I am going to get between the gun and, the, and one of our people, whoever that gun might be pointing to. I, my intention is to get between the gun and anybody that's with us. That's, I want that to be a reflex. I'm already thinking that way. Now, I hope I follow through. I mean, you might, you might read, and Pastor Wyndham ran like a chicken. Or used one of the women as a shield. But I, I don't want to do that. I want to do what is right. But this is where it comes down to your responsibility to know what your Heavenly Father is saying so that your story is one 
where you put the knife to your throat. That you know what 2 o'clock on Monday afternoon means for you. It means something wonderful, something noble, something righteous, something that has meaning, something that's not just burning up time. And then the way you speak. Proverbs has a lot to say, and the rest of the Bible has a lot to say about how you speak and how you think and how you relate. Why, if we got this, then sibling rivalry would be gone because now you would be your sister's greatest fan or your friend's greatest fan or your brother's greatest supporter rather than wishing you were like them or whatever. So it has a lot of ramifications in your life. Now, I need to read something here. Remember she was clothed in linen? Ezekiel chapter 16, and I read this last year. Let me just read a portion of it this year. Ezekiel chapter 16, talking about God dealing with all his people at one time. He typifies it this way. He says, and by the way, it's as if Israel was a, um, a, a an outcast, a baby that was unwanted. Right after the birth, the baby is just thrown in the field. God says, then I washed you with water. I thoroughly washed off your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you, and this is as Israel grows up. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were, and God speaking to his people, you were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty. Listen to this carefully. For it was perfect through my splendor. Her beauty, God's people's beauty, was perfect through God's splendor. My splendor, which I bestowed on you, says the Lord. So God wants us to be excellent. Second Peter chapter 1 would say, because you are now a Christian, then you need to add to your faith virtue, which is the same word as excellence. Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul is going through how God brought us after we were dead in trespasses and sin and brought us into the glorious kingdom of his son, he says, and now you are God's masterpiece, workmanship. In fact, you are God's poem. God wants to do a work in your life. He wants your life to be an amazing, amazing, amazing story. If you sit here, you believe what I'm saying. 
If you're sitting over there, you don't. There's another passage of Scripture in Revelation. Where it says this, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and her bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now this is the first time in my life that I saw the, the next verse, the next part of the verse. Let me lead up to it again. It was granted her, it's talking about the church, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Here it is. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see, when we, when we are, as we are in covenant and as we listen to God and we apply his word to our lives, that is the only point and way of righteousness, of sanctification. And it is beautiful. Just like the woman in Proverbs 31, just like Israel in Ezekiel 16, and now in Revelation, she is beautiful, she is radiant, she is clothed with righteousness. Because she's fully engaged in writing her story. Of course, this is all kind of wedding language, talking about Jesus and us. Our righteous deeds are how we write our story. This is how it goes. How many of you have taken dance? Dance lessons. Ah, come on. You guys can raise your hands too. Okay. Well, they say that, you know, you begin to do the dance that, um, and by the way, I can't dance, so I'm not going to do any. I wish I could moonwalk, though, you know? <laughs> they say as you're learning to dance, what you're doing, and everyone that's ever learned to dance will get this immediately, is you don't, you, you're counting. You're one, two, back over here. You're counting. You know, you're doing, you're taking dance lessons every night for the dance going. So you're kind of counting the steps or you're remembering what you're supposed to do, right? But when you really can dance, I mean, when you, when you finally get past that, you're not thinking about it anymore. You're not like three steps this way, two over here. You're not thinking that anymore. You're just doing it. And that's when you're really dancing. When you're learning the scripture, you, you might have to open your Bible, you know, you might have to memorize some things, and you're counting, but counting is still dancing. But the point is you want to get to the dance. You want to, you want to know what God wants you to do and what he would have for you. And so the movement of your mind and the movement of your tongue and the movement of your hands in life are in sync with the instructions that you're being given. My oldest daughter got married a year and a half ago. It was the hardest thing in my life, I think. I just love all my kids. 
except for Miles. Oh, he's here. So you know what we did? She is going to get married. And every wedding, one of the most precious parts of the wedding is the, is the father-daughter dance. At least it's the most precious part for the dads, right? And so most of the time, and every, every wedding I'd ever been, up, been to up to that time was here's how the, the father and the daughter danced at the reception. You know, the father's stepping all over her feet, you know, because dads don't dance. Dads, most dads just don't know how to dance. And that is awesome. I mean, that's dad and daughter. Whatever you do is, is just ah, that's so precious, so good. But I decided that for the first time in my life, I wanted to dance. So you know what I did? I talked to my daughter about this. And we took secret dance lessons. We didn't even tell my wife. We didn't tell her, her, the sister. We didn't tell the brothers. We told no one. And we met with this guy who helped choreograph a special dance for our wedding. Were you there, sir? So we, we practiced this. And then we had to, like, well, I need to go to the store. And she said, well, I need to go see somebody. And we would meet at a gym or we would meet in a parking lot and we would we would play this song and we would dance to this song and we'd practice our steps and I mean I'm counting like bump bumping in her dragging her over here you know and and she's like now she's leading because I'm doing the wrong thing and we learned this dance because it was for the wedding it's preparation for the wedding we're all going to a wedding we're all going if we're in covenant. And so <clears throat> we practice this dance, but but there was something else that she didn't know. Ha <laughs> ha, sneaky, sneaky dad. I put a slideshow together with pictures of her. And the venue that we had was this was uh was bigger than this room. And it was, the ceiling was higher and it was all it was all old brick and, and nice timbers. It was just gorgeous. And they had, as big as that fireplace, that whole brick fireplace, they had three multimedia screens. And so there was one over there and one in the center and one over here. And before we started dancing, those screens came down. And as we started dancing, slides of her life were shown to everyone. And the way we did it was I, I, I wanted to not have any slides showing when we did our major moves. Does that make sense? I mean, isn't that smart? You know, they're looking over here and we practice and they're always looking at the slides and not looking at us, right? And so, so in the slideshow, there are some black spaces so here's what we did. We get out in the front. You know, it's precious. There's the dad. There's the daughter. Everybody's watching. And we start doing our, like we don't know how to dance. Right? And so we're doing this. And then there's a transition. 
in the song. And when there's a transition, she spins away, and I go into a kung fu dance. And she comes back, and when she, and that's like, what the heck? Everybody's looking at this. No slides when that happens, you know, because everyone's back. And goes, what is that? And then we start dancing, and we're dancing, and my wife's jaw just drops, and everyone's like, what the heck? That's Pastor Wyndham. He can't do this. And and we're doing this, and then. The song gets kind of somber. And if this is the, if that's the slide place right there, we're like right in the middle and it gets really somber. And I just, we, I let her go and I walk toward the screen. And it's really kind of sad kind of music right now. And I walk toward the screen and three slides come up. And they're just very special slides, pictures. And while I'm standing there looking at this, and the music's starting, it's sad, but it's about to end the sad part, she comes up behind me and touches my back, and she comes in front of me, and then the music transitions to high, celebratory, festive, upbeat, and then... We do some moves like you would not believe. I mean, it was already good over here. It was good. But I mean, now we are everywhere. Aren't we, Sarah? Do you remember that? We are everywhere. I'm going backwards, not moonwalking, but I'm going backwards. And she's going forward and she's spinning as she's going forward. And then we get over here. We do some kind of pirouette. I can't remember. And we go this direction. And we go that direction. And then... And then there's a surprise at the end. The combination of her dad seeing her whole life unfold. Her story, right? Capturing it. Providing for it. Facilitating. Encouraging. Instructing. Loving. Preparing her for the dance. This is your story. This is the goal. Your Heavenly Father loves you. Knows where you are right now. Knows what, knows what chair you're sitting in. He wants you to learn the steps. He wants you to get to the point where you can do the hard steps. So that you are dancing before you get to the feast. Let's all commit in this time of eating great food and making new friends and being around people that we care about and hearing the word. Let's, let's all commit to our story. Father, help us, we pray indeed. Help each and every one of us to take great pleasure every day in living before you, 
every day, every moment of each of those days. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.